Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Gillian Robespierre's new film, Landline, which tells the story of two sisters in 1990s New York who suspect their father may be having an affair. As the girls set out to discover the truth without tipping off their mother, they learn that their parents are humans too, and that life can be more complicated than they'd imagined. In addition to Landline, Ms. Robespierre's credits include the short and feature-length versions of Obvious Child, and episodes of the television series Casual. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in New York, Ms. Robespierre discussed the making of Landline with director Marielle Heller. During their conversation, Ms. Robespierre talks about why she chose to set her film during the 90s, the importance of realizing a New York family on screen, and why she shoots stills instead of conventional storyboards to envision a film. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, guys. I'm Mari Gillian. Um, so I'm here to just ask some questions, and because I loved this movie so much, and I'm also a director, I'm going to focus my questions a little bit director-focused, if that's okay. And we're at the DGA. And we're at the DGA. It felt so appropriate. Makes sense. Um, how would you classify yourself as a director? If you had to, like, describe your style of directing, what would you say it is? Ooh, I've never been asked that question. I know, I was trying to ask something different, you know. Um, it's a cool question. I would say um, my first movie, I would say my style was Nights and Weekends um, <laughs> because I actually worked here. And uh, this was my day job, not on this stage, but in the building next door. And I did a lot of rewriting on my commute into work and on my lunch break at uh, local salad places um, around and, um, and on nights and weekends. And I wasn't able to be a full-time filmmaker until I sold this idea uh, for Landline and uh, developed it with a company and, and got paid to develop it. So, um, you know, calling myself a full-time filmmaker is a privilege and is exciting enough um, as a label. But I would say that I'm uh, neurotic and chill at the same time. I like it. Do you storyboard? Do you plan out, like, do you see the edit in your head and kind of know what you want visually? Do you let pe the actors improv? Like, what's your style on set? Definitely don't storyboard um, because of uh, just having the ability to, to shoot locations, you know, with an SLR camera. I just, we storyboard with stills and um, also taking stills from other movies. So my shot list is combination of written and stills from location scouting, and stills from other people's movies. Um, but my very first film school movie, I was dating a comic book artist at the time, so I storyboarded the whole movie, and it was almost better than the actual movie. <laughs> Actually, it was better than the actual movie. Um, and I know the Coen brothers storyboard everything, and they're, you know, I'm a huge 
fan of theirs, but uh, you know, a lot changes. A lot of times, uh, you know, with a movie this size, any size really, like you lose a location the night before. So falling in love and storyboarding a certain place is hard to do in indie filmmaking. So I definitely uh, have to be more flexible. I'm with you. Um, I saw an article recently that said you were our generation's Nora Ephron. That was in Vogue. I thought it was really a great... Vogue.com, not the... Okay, it was in Vogue.com, but that's still Vogue, I think. Um, but it, I loved that article. I thought it was really, really well-written, and I feel like people have been talking about the death of rom-coms for, like, 15 years or something like that. And this article was basically saying you were help, helping to bring them back in a, in a new and fresh way. How do, does that feel like a lot of pressure to be our generation's Nora Ephron? <laughs> it, it's a great... It, it was a very flattering article. Um, definitely choked me up. Um, I love the rom-com. That's sort of what I ate every every weekend as a child. You know, a lot of Nora Ephron movies, John Hughes movies. But then in high school, I liked going to darker places. And I, you know, would go to Angelica and watch Jim Jarmusch movies and Gus Van Sant movies. So I, I think I like writing that line between lightness and darkness. And I don't think Nora did dark. Um, I think she had it inside of her, for sure, as we all do as humans. But her her romantic comedies, they were realistic and um, really funny, but they had a lightness to them that um, I kind of feel like, you know, in 2017, we, we don't do that. Um, life isn't very light. Um, I think movies should be entertaining and enjoyable and fun and make you feel like you can escape and disappear. But it's nice to bring in uh, some darkness into the sort of joys that rom-coms do give you, um, which I love. You know, I still, every Sunday, if I didn't have a small child, I would be watching, you know, a Nora Ephron movie if I could. We share that. Not only are we both lady filmmakers, but we're moms of young little kids. Um, and we also have both just made movies about the 90s. Um, so what made what drew you to making this movie, setting this movie in the 90s? I'm sure you thought about all of the, that you could have said it modern day, there's, the themes are the same that we could be exploring today. So was there a specific reason why you wanted to set it in the 90s? Yeah, I mean, we did want it to feel timeless and not have the 90s be a, you know, caricature of the 90s. We, I didn't want, like, you know, somebody doing the running man into every scene, <laughs> even though we do have a running man moment. Um, it's a personal story. Uh, my co-writer, Liz, and I grew up in New York City in the 90s. We came of age when um, New York was a much different place, where it felt like middle-class families could exist in Manhattan. And our parents divorced when we were teenagers. So it, was, it started from there. But then the idea of having to um, have a scene where somebody checks their Facebook or their Twitter or like whatever, Tinder. Um, was boring to me. It, it's I think movies and television shows do do that well. I couldn't find a clever way to do it, so we said it in the 90s. And also it's about a family dysfunctionally not communicating and then having to communicate, and um, we wanted to make them do that in small apartments face-to-face -face rather than through email or text. <laughs> when did you shoot this movie again? Uh, the spring of 2016, I think. Yes. Okay, so before the election. So like the Hillary Clinton stuff, that yeah. was all in there before 
Yeah, we bought. We were the like suit. in the primaries. Or she something. was going to be our president, right? Um, and it was going to be a very tongue-in-cheek, hopefully lighter moment than what it is now. I'm not unhappy with how it's sort of a heavier scene. Uh, she was always Edie's character, always paralleled, you know, um, Clinton in many ways. Both strong matriarchs, both um, holding in secrets both married to men who are cheating on them. And um, so those parallels were there, but it was supposed to just be a real chuckle. And then when we were editing, we went, you know, we went into the edit and we share the same editor and Anne and I and Casey, my other editor, we were just silent and unable to really communicate. We sat there and I think we just decided, we watched the scene and we kept it as is. There was not much to do. Um, but when we screened at Sundance, it was the afternoon of the inauguration. Oh. Yeah, so people were laughing and then there was like a unified, just like groan, groan sigh, yeah. Um, and now it still does get big laughs, but it is always followed with a groan. Um, I like it for the movie, I just don't like it for our lives. <laughs> I agree. Um, I think the movie is so nuanced and tackles subject matter that is often kind of seen in a really black and white way, but in a much more nuanced gray way. And one of the things that I think is like so expertly done in the movie is you feel this judgment of Edie Falco's character where you're like, she's snooping on her daughters, but she doesn't pay attention to her own husband because you really think she's in the dark the whole time. You're like, she clearly is spending too much time looking at what her daughter's doing and not enough time at her own marriage. And then you realize, of course, at the end, oh no, she's looking everywhere. Was that something that you kind of knew you wanted in the script the whole time or? Definitely, we definitely crafted Edie's character that she knew the whole time. And a lot of audience like yourself and um, find her to be a little bit harsh or cold in the first act. Or, oh, I didn't you didn't say that. harsh or cold, but we have had those notes mostly from men. Um, and I think that getting those notes on our female characters from men or women um, is disheartening and it angers me and it's something that I fight back on as hard as I can because I don't think our female characters or male characters have to be likable throughout our whole movie. And I think what makes a movie or a character interesting is their arc and how they change, and um, we definitely had notes on Jenny's character and Edie's being likable because Jenny cheats. Uh, never had a note about John's character, even though he also is struggling with monogamy, but Jenny had to be likable, and and I, I do think she is, but I also think that... The word likable needs to be just erased from any conversation about characters, though. Yes. and it's, it's only ever, ever references women. For sure. For sure, and um, no one looks at you know Woody Allen movie and says he has to be more likable. I, I want to clarify what I was kind of trying to point out about Edie's character. There's something, it's like it reveals your own bias about it because you've, I didn't even judge her for looking that deeply at her daughters. Now that I've become a mom, suddenly my, my mom's snooping seems much more understandable in a way that I, as a teenager, found it to be super frustrating. And now I'm kind of like, oh, I get it. If your kids stop talking to you, I understand that desire to snoop. But, um, but I think that feeling of like uh, misjudging her or just believing that she wasn't 
this super conscious, aware person of everything that was going around. And then having that moment of like, oh, of course she knew. It made so much sense. The moment that that came out, it was like, that was such a wonderful reveal, but it was held back in a really nice way. And it makes you as an audience member, I think, kind of go, oh, of course. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, that was by design and Edie's performance. Edie Falco is a dream. Um, the fact that I got to work with her was a dream come true, amazing. And she's just so good that she was able to really be nuanced in that first act and subtle. And you know she's holding something in, but you're not sure. She's so reserved and she really cut all the bullshit out of um, her her way of being in that first act and let it explode in act three, which is so beautiful. And I think her performance with John when they're having sex is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's amazing. And when I was on set directing them, I was definitely pinching myself. <laughs> that was honestly one of the questions Not I wrote down way. was like, no, I get it. But one of the questions I wrote down was, how is directing Edie Falco? Because it's kind of a, a director's dream. She's just such an incredible actor. She's she, the best. I would think she would almost be intimidating because you're like, how do you give somebody like that a note? Um, or you maybe don't. you just don't. <laughs> no, no. <Yeah. laughs> well, you don't have to. Uh, she does so much work by herself and inside of herself. And the notes are, you know, very minimal with Edie. It's to really try... A, a slight variation, but she was living and breathing inside of this character and doing things that I necessarily didn't even see on set, but in the edit, it really came alive. Um, you're on monitor and you know that the performance is moving and you know everyone behind you, all the grips are you know kind of moved by it, but you don't know you don't know until really you're in the edit. It's, you go on a feeling and a hunch, um, and she blew me away in the edit, and so did Jenny and Abby. The movie was written always to be about two sisters not getting along at first and bonding through the experience of watching their parents' marriage crumble, but the chemistry between these two women, again, was something that you just wasn't really on the page. It was all in their performance, and, and in the edit, we definitely reshaped the story to be more of a sister's story, and it is a love story, I think, between these two women, um, more than it being a, about a family. It's really between Jenny and Abby's characters. Um, I've known I love Jenny Slate and her, as a performer for a long time, but Abby was a bit of a revelation for me. How did you find her? A great casting director in New York named Doug Abel and his associate, Stephanie Holbrook. And I always say their names because they uh, saved our movie. Um, they found Abby. She came in on auditioned, and luckily it's not 1995, so I got to Google her. And she can really jam. She's a singer. She's a songwriter. She has this beautiful voice. Rewrote the whole scene for her to sing. Um, and she had this, we saw a lot of fine young actresses. But she blew us away because she had um, sort of an old soul, but also this infectious giggle. And I could tell that she had straightened her hair for the audition. And I have super curly hair. And as somebody who straightened it all through the 90s, I can smell them out. And I knew <laughs> that she would look like Abby's, um, Jenny's sister and that she would also look like John Turturro's daughter. And I hate movies where... Families don't look alike. Look I hate so movies where much there's alike. Like sexual tension between a father and a daughter. You're like, what the fuck? Um, totally. So, yeah. So it was really important to make this family feel like a New York family. That's why John and Edie, who are New York staples, um, 
were amazing get. And then to sort of create this world around Jenny, an obvious child, she was in every single frame. So it was kind of nice as a storyteller and filmmaker to push myself and to grow and to push her and to um, tell multiple stories in one movie, which we didn't do at the first one. It does really feel like such an ensemble movie. And it is, it's a tricky thing that I was thinking about after watching it, just also being a writer of like, how do you balance all of these different relationships, not just her and her fiance, her and her sister, the parents, all of those relationships have to get a full arc, have to get set up in the beginning, have to have a middle, have to have an end, and they can't all just line up, boom, boom, boom. You have to find a way to like sprinkle those in throughout. Was that a challenge both in the writing and the edit, I imagine? The yeah, balance? I think in the writing, even all the smaller characters like John Turturro's character, Finn's character, Jay Duplass's character, we wanted to make all of them, even the men, even though this is a women's movie, it's a story about three women, three generations within one family, we wanted to make sure that the male characters also had really deep narratives. And we wanted, you know, Finn's character, who's supposed to be sort of the hunky guy who takes her out of her world, not to just be your regular Lothario who, you know, has no brain and just like, you know, flashy muscles we wanted him to to be as deep as as all the characters so it was a combination of crafting it before we started shooting um finding amazing actors uh and then you know finding their their best takes in the movie it was such a in the edit, every woman probably like groaned in that moment that rec when she re recognizes where he's actually coming from and what his kind of philosophy about monogamy is it's such a like Oh God, we've all been there. That is horrible. It was it was very well done. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, should we open it up to a few questions before we end the evening? Is that all right with you? Is it? Yes. Okay. Anyone have a question Hi, I'd like to ask? <laughs> right there. Hi. Thank you. That was just a it's very New York. Story. Yeah, I was gonna repeat that. Really New Yorky. You got the New Yorkiness. Thank you. And it was hard to shoot in New York now because it's like one big city bike. Um, so we had to shoot around a lot of blue. And have you noticed that they've now added these like Wi-Fi centers? They on? didn't have those when we were shooting. I know. And when I was shooting my 90s movie six months ago, they didn't have them either. And I was looking around just thinking they're making it harder and harder to shoot period movies. City bikes everywhere. And now these big Wi-Fi tower things yeah. that like take and up a city block. stops or, you know. Yeah, don't get me started on bus stops. <laughs> uh, any other questions? Comments about how much you loved it? Yeah. The question is, I love the movie, and I was weirded out by the title. Why did you call it Landline and not Infidelity? Um, also a good title. Uh, Landline because um, a couple reasons. One is we wanted people to not really have to question the time when you sit in the theater or, you know, watch it in, on your computer, um, that you know it's going to be a period piece. Uh, the landline is a symbol, I feel like, of the the hub of the hearth of the, the house in the 90s before we were all highly addicted to the little computers that we carry around in our pockets. Um, the landline was the thing that connected us, and it's a story about a family disconnected and having to find meaning again in themselves and their lives and within the, their their family lives. So it was sort of like the cord was symbolic of, you know, 
um, the connection this family needed to find and they needed to start communicating again. So it was supposed to be poetic. <laughs> I'm gonna repeat the question. He was saying when Edie Falco walks into that bar, he thought the reveal was gonna be that she was also having an affair. Was that your intention? Um, in the written draft of the script, the shooting script, um, she actually tells Mitch that she knows. In the edit, we decided to keep it that she doesn't know until post-sex scene with her husband. Um, and that we were gonna flirt with the idea that you might think Edie is going home with Mitch and that she too is having an affair. So that I, the fact that you picked up on that was amazing because that was made <laughs> in post-production. I thought that too. And it was, it's exciting that people are you know, not sure what's gonna happen or you think everyone's cheating. Um, <laughs> and then the reveal is that she's known the whole time. So that's it. Thank you. As somebody, oh yeah, part B, sure. Did Jay Duplass, because he's a filmmaker, direct his own scenes? No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Did Jay Duplass bring something that you oh, didn't man, expect? Oh man, that guy, he's a real prima donna. He, I've also directed Jay Duplass, and he is a delight. The most amazing the person. The sweetest, most generous, wonderful smart, person. supportive, uh, great to sort of gossip with behind, you and know, in I, gigs. as when I directed him, I never felt like, oh God, I'm directing a director. No, it wasn't sort of until afterwards that I was like, that could have been awkward. He kind of was behind the camera for so long, and I think he's pumped to be an actor. He's excited that he doesn't have to like think about budget and shots, and um, he was a really excited. He was excited about his wardrobe. Really. Um, had great chemistry with Jenny, uh, never once made me feel undermined. Um, also, uh, I was nervous to work with him because of that, but he's a gem. You know, John also directs movies, so there are, there are a couple of directors on set. And then you have your producers, so there's a lot another, of... <laughs> another nuance of the movie that I just really related to is as somebody who, as I've gotten older, I think you're always... a as a woman, you're always afraid, oh, I'm gonna turn into my mom. And then I've had these realizations as I've gotten older, you like, I'm my mom. dad. Oh. No, yeah. I'm not my mom. Oh shit, I didn't even know to be worried about turning into my dad, but I turned into my dad, right? And so I thought there was something so nice about like that, that sneaks up on you. If you're a woman, you are kind of taught by society, like you're gonna turn into your mom. And then to I have two characters- to be our parents. Right. But no to have a what female character yeah. who kind of turns around and goes like, "Oh no, am I my dad?" She is her dad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm I'm my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. No, I'm I'm both my parents and I'm also myself. But I think you know what spurred this movie was wanting to tell a story about somebody who's uh, internally struggling with the idea of monogamy and how hard it is to be in a monogamous relationship. Both my writer and I are products of divorce and we were getting married when we were writing this movie or I had just become a newlywed and I was pregnant, I think, when we were writing it. So um, we were struggling with those issues. So it wasn't just a movie about you know, a, a, a divorce. It was sort of like we were we were writers of what you know the sort of um, aftermath of a divorce twenty years later, and what what that felt like. Um, so it was a little cathartic, and also we decided to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. I also think a really painful part of life for everybody is the moment when you realize your parents are people, 
and that they are flawed and it it hurts no matter when that moment happens for you. For some people it happens really, really young and for some people it happens when you're teenagers. I think that's probably the most common time. But no matter what, it's like it's a very painful moment and when it happens with something like that with one email or one reveal, it's it's like a a cracking. For sure. And I think there's also a lot of strength and vulnerability. So um, finding out that your parents aren't perfect and you know my I would watch my mom do like a Sunday crossword puzzle in like five minutes and I thought she was the smartest woman on earth and I was like you didn't know my whatever was happening um but that that vulnerability in in a child's eyes I think is what changed our whole house and made it even stronger and that's right. sort of what we were trying to show knowing that your parents are flawed lets you know you can be flawed and that you're still yeah, it gives you some permission to be yourself. Yeah, and hopefully more. people can watch this movie and feel a little less mm -hmm. isolated and alone. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. One question right there. What what, if anything, did you learn from Obvious Child that you were able able to employ on this film? Probably nothing. Making movies is like easy. You don't learn anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it gave me the confidence to walk onto Landline and say I know nothing. Um, and I think that's ex where the exciting things happen, where you don't walk into a room and say, I'm king of mountain. Um, <laughs> where you just uh, allow for things to be um, your first. There's always gonna be a first with every movie. And it has to feel like that or else, I don't think um, you'll make a good movie if you think that you've written it and you've edited it and shot it before your actors start speaking the lines. So allowing for those mistakes, not knowing the answer to every question, and having the confidence in that. And I don't think I had that confidence on Obvious Child. I pretended I knew everything. <laughs> and um, I relate so much to this yeah. answer to this question. So I think it's important to, to I remember that open. moment, the first moment I allowed myself to say I didn't know something as a director and what a like scary and freeing moment it was because you realize that the people you're collaborating with actually appreciate honesty. Don't You have to have a certain amount of confidence and know your story, but it's all right to also say, I have you all here because you're experts in your particular field. I don't know about lenses. Maybe you can tell me about the difference between these two lenses or whatever it is to admit you don't know something is actually. Totally. It's so sh it's it's such a positive thing for the process. Yeah. And to know that you can work with a crew of 5 in film school, 30 and then 70 and 100 and it's still your set. So it'll always feel and run the way you what you give to it. And it's um, not as intimidating as as you would think it is. One more question. One more question. Wait up up there in the top. It's better that way. <laughs> I'm going to repeat the question real quick. Do you find, as a filmmaker and writer, that it's hard to separate the roles? Um, I love it. I I like being able to direct the stories that I, we're you know have been thinking up for months, years, and I've been living with. Um, but I recently started directing television, not my own, not shows that I created, just really work for hire. And I wasn't sure if I would be good at it, if I would enjoy it, um, but I loved it. And I was really able to focus on directing and not think about 
the thousand other little things that can be distracting from the pleasure of directing. So um, I love being able to control as much as I can on my own films, but I really realize that um, shooting other people's stories is really exciting. It's a muscle that you don't really often get to exercise and it's um, because of the money that take, it takes to do it. Uh, and it's a pleasure to be able to, to be totally tunnel vision and just work with actors and come up with shots. I was just going to give some context that we both have directed episodes of a TV show called Casual, which is on Hulu. And it's such a delightful show to work on because it is a really well-run show. We were just talking in the lobby about what a well-run show it is and how you really get to come in and do your job. Like sometimes when you're working on your passion projects or your babies or your things that you've championed every step of the way, you spend a lot of your time putting out fires and like just trying to protect this thing and hope it actually gets into the world. And sometimes getting to go in, you said it well, but getting to go in and just focus on directing is... It's a different job in yeah. some ways. It feels like it, it should have a different name than directing or something. But it's it it's it, maybe that's what directing is, and the other thing is should have a different name. But it, I don't think so. <laughs> you think they're both directing? Yeah. The other it's we're at the DJ. We have to say that, or else it, they'll oh yeah take our jobs away. No, but they do. It, it's a it's it's flexing a different muscle for yeah. sure. Yep. All right. I think that's all we have time for. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. You can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.